What a joy for me to let you experience our conversation with Charles Lawrence, a brilliant psychologist, but more importantly, an initiate and powerful channel of the wisdom and medicine of many indigenous cultures and people. Charles is a spring in the desert, gushing forth with joy, hope, and profound wisdom of the earth. You might want to take your shoes off at this point as we enter together because the ground is getting very holy. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Well, welcome everyone. My name is still John Dupuy and this is my my dear friend and co-host and colleague Roger Walsh and that is Charles Lawrence and let me say a little bit about that. I know I always say that that I'm very excited because we have amazing guests here but this is deeply personal one for me and we connected I don't know a while back and we started talking on the internet and we just found an immediate resonance in our experience. And it was just one of those things, one of those guided things that happen. And what it is, is Charles, he's a psychologist, but he's also deeply initiated in Blackfoot, I believe, genetically, and has been adopted by a grandmother from the Hopi tribe and been accepted by all these different tribes. And is is, is this person that has a uh, feet in both worlds and kind of our Western modern world and the ancient wisdom and tradition of the original Americans. And there's, there's so much there. And also he worked with Joseph Campbell, which really initiated and started him on this journey. who's was a very important influence in my life also. And we have a connection through my dear friend and mentor, Wallace Black Elk that we both knew and had great love for and being able to share that with another human being was terrific. So welcome, Charles. And if I I missed massive amounts, but if there's anything you would uh, like to add to that, please, please do so. I'm I'm actually tingling with joy and delight to be a part of this. Getting to share the journey as complex and intricate as it may be you say have a foot in both worlds at times. I don't know which world I'm dancing in because there's more than two worlds. There's other other parallels in my journey throughout these decades now of being sent here, being sent there, hearing voices to go here, go there, find myself in one specific case, well, more than that, actually, but the one from the Northwest, a medicine man who'd been waiting two years for me to arrive and how I then was interwoven into the fabric of what happened all these decades up there in the Northwest and the Black Elks. We got to go on and on, but I, I'm, I'm curious to find out what really, like with Roger, from your background, I had to leave Western psychology behind in the dust, a lot of it, because it was serving, uh, it didn't serve the multiple, the complex experience that I was having and had had. So I'm curious to see just what comes up, you know? Filled with curiosity. You know, Roger, Roger's great at that, by the way. Good. And, uh, That's what I want. I, I yearn for that. Those crucial questions that can, you know, bring forth information, experience that's not on the surface. It, it evokes something deeper. 
Well, Charles, I'd like to pose a question to start out with. You said you had this connection with Joseph Campbell, yeah. whom I'm sure everybody here knows, a hugely influential figure in the 20th century and whose, whose influence lives on. So how did you connect with him? What was that about? And how did he kind of initiate you into this lifelong journey you've been on? Well, the name Gene Houston. Are you familiar with Gene Houston? Well, I was an associate with Jean. I, I, I was there. Uh, she had heard about me and these strange things were happening at, at a given time here in New York. And she reached out to me and invited me to come to her house up in Pomona, New York. I was a stranger in a strange land in that way. But she opened her front door and took one look at me and said, well, you're an old shaman. And I never heard that word before, but something inside of me, I would say, was triggered and then she said to me, well, after several hours of visiting, and she said, well, you know what, while you're heading back to New York, stop along the Palisades Parkway and just talk to the universe and say, uh, if this old broad has anything in that she's saying that's valid, give me a sign. And oh, boy. That's a, that's a great question. <laughs> yes, yes. And then to walk in the door of my apartment, I then lived in the city, and uh, within minutes, the telephone was ringing. And it was a woman in a psych ward in Boston who had had some kind of a, an emotional break during a Muktananda retreat. And she was in this psych ward, but she kept hearing my name and my telephone number. I didn't know her at all. Within three hours, I had talked her out of her. This information just kept coming through that talked her out of whatever crisis stage she was in. And that was the beginning then that, that began to unfold more and more. And it was Jean who met me, sent me to meet Joe. And he was not quite the Joseph Campbell then, didn't have all that notoriety at that time. And during a break, I had had this experience of learning about meditation. It was all new to me. I'd been a businessman. I'd been in theater. And at age 40, my reality collapsed. And I'd gone back to Bermuda to do some work in Bermuda, where I had lived for a number of years. This friend of mine in New Jersey said, well, she'd taken a course in meditation. Why don't you try that? Okay, I, what else was what to do? And during that course, that learning those learning stages, someone appeared in my mental screen who I had no cognizance of, who was this great being? And it turned out he'd been, he'd been killed in the airplane crash six months before, quite a well-known guru in America, and his mother lived right across the street. So he made contact through me to his mother. And these doors, these paranormal doors just kept opening and opening you know, and as Joe said to me, then at one point, Joe invited me to his home, which wasn't far from me in the city, and I got to know his wife, Jean Erdman, and I did a number of teachings at the open eye, as this whole world of shamanism was coming out of the shadows and being recognized for the vital intelligence, that it, natural intelligence that it carries. And that's how it got started. <laughs> and again, it's Joe saying, when you go to it, if, if you have a destiny, you better go gracefully or you'll get dragged by your heels. And at that time, I was in such a state of panic, which happened a number of times along the way, because all that foundation I had had in Western psychology, Western religion, etc., was shattered. It was absolutely shattered. The night that I, well, the time when I was hit by lightning the first time, that also just shattered my psyche, you know, and it goes on and on. And then being sent here and there, hearing these voices, go here, do that. And Joe talks about the fool, the Zalik, and who just follows what the guidance is. 
And that has served me. I'm just, I don't actually follow that guidance, the intuition, whatever, however it shows up. Wait for a sign and follow that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what I, what amazed me about when I was introduced to this, and it's a whole kind of, you know, serendipitous, yeah. amazing chain of events that, that got me there is that very clearly I saw with Wallace and, and the people that I was introduced to is like the native peoples, at least the, the Plains Indians, those tribes that I was most familiar with, they didn't need white people to come and teach them about monotheism. They got it in a really real lived way that the great spirit or Wakantanka, however you want to phrase that, was moving through all time, all things, yet at the same time, everything else was sacred too in its own connected but special spiritual thing. And it's just so so heartbreakingly gorgeous, you know? Man, this has so much medicine for us today as we struggle how to be human beings and co-thrive and survive with, with the planet and each other and all our other brothers and sisters. And in that in that energy, magic happens. I mean, you know, and maybe that's a really bad word. I'm trying to find out what the Wakan, the mystery happens. And we realize that our, our ancestors weren't a bunch of nutcases that were just, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years, we're like trying to make up stories so they'd feel better things really move and happen. And of course, we left that behind in modernity and, and learning everything that modernity brought, which is in many cases is great stuff. But now we're at a point where we need to reabsorb the the wisdom of our, our elders and our grandparents, who if they had all be together, basically talking about the same stuff through different cultural lenses, but there's, there's, a, there's a deep unity in that. And it, it's very noble and it's very loving and it's very challenging and it's very courageous and it's about taking responsibility and service and being brave and walking your path. And it's like, yeah, I'll just be quiet for a while, but yeah, that's, that's some of the stuff that I learned. <laughs> Any questions from you, Roger? Well, I'm sure there will, but please keep, keep going. Uh, maybe I'll just say that in preparing for this, I reread one of my favorite books of the Native American tradition, Joseph Eppes Brown, The Spiritual Legacy of the uh, American Indian. And, and the feelings I was left with in reading this, and as I was sitting in meditation today, I could feel them, was first off, the extent of the attunement to nature. Mm -hmm. And second, the sense of interconnection. Humans are interconnected and interconnected with and dependent on the nature and animals and the whole ecology. Another thing was the sacredness, that everything was was sacred and to be revered. And another thing that struck me was a, a sad comparison with our own culture in which elders and elders were the repositories of the cultural wisdom and were revered as such. And that's such a contrast with parts of our culture in which in many ways age is a assumed to be a negative, thought of as loss of function, and, and in some cases it is, because our cultures, as with the rise of technologies and science, uh, knowledge, information, technology of us have, have eclipsed wisdom. And with that, there's been a loss of the, we've gone from what Margaret, the uh, anthropologist Margaret Mead called a a post-figurative society in which the young learn from their old elders to a prefigurative society in which the 
which the many cases, you know, those of us who are older are trying to catch up and learn from uh, the younger. And with any progress, there's what's called the dialectic of progress, that there's there are some great benefits, but there are also losses. And so that was, I was really reminded of the, that as I as I read again this book on the spiritual legacy of the American Indian. Right, right. Okay, thank you. Ah, the first time, and again, I was set, well, I set that time, I was set by Jean also to go meet Purbalaya Khan. That was part of my journey decades ago. And I had never been, didn't know about the Sufis. I was in a seven-day retreat, a silent retreat. And within minutes of the retreat being over, two women approached me. One was Pure Balayat Khan's secretary, and one was a woman lawyer from Madison, Wisconsin, who said to me that Wallace Black Elk and his wife were going to be in Madison, Wisconsin in two weeks, and I was meant to be there. And then the Pure Balayat Khan's secretary had a message for me. So two weeks later, I walked into a lecture hall in Madison, Wisconsin, and I took the grace about an eagle. I took one look. In fact, I can feel the tears right now. We took one look at each other as they were both started crying. And whatever that was, I didn't know about these sense of connections. I was a stranger in a strange land. And it was in a matter of months after that, I did sweat lodge with them. I was invited to sweat lodge. And within a matter of months, I was invited out to Minneapolis to lead a summer solstice gathering where the first night of that, around midnight, we had been gathering and dancing. A woman approached me with a chinupa, the sacred pipe, and asked me to put a blessing on it. And I had been actually avoiding the pipe because I, I didn't understand it at that time. And she said she was quite insistent. So I just turned and held this pipe up, the chinupa, up to the midnight sky. And I said, creator, you know that I'm not a pipe carrier, you know, that my sister is asking for a blessing, so I offer this to you. And at that moment in time was the first crack of lightning, which shattered all those religious beliefs, the construct, Roger, and others that we've been, we have been not only domesticated into, we've been imprisoned by. Because as you talk about in the, with the way of the Epps uh, Brown's book there, that indigenous people have a lens to something more complex and yet very elegant. In the, in the relationship to all existence. We're speaking right now, and I can feel my own ancestors. I can feel Joe Wallace is here. All these other people I've been sent to around the world, they're with me. They're, they're woven into the fabric or the vibration of my being. And what I have learned over these decades and all that, the second time I was hit was three days later in ceremony in front of 60 people this flash of light just came out of the midday sky and went into a crystal goblet i was holding and then that night a, 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 an ojibwe elder came and i was doing my usual thing of attempting to keep a facade and inside i was hurting terrified because i thought the devil had been unleashed on me according to my Christian background. And this old medicine man in the middle of the lodge which you know then is dark the glowing rocks, etc. Just this hand grabbed me on the shoulder and said, you, whoever you are, the spirit of the great bear has just come in the lodge. And I'm being told to tell you, you're being trained to handle lightning. And with that, I started screaming because I had to have a cathexis of some kind. 
And traditionalists, some, some elders, they wait until you, you subside a bit. They said, well, you're still here, aren't you? Like, get over it, boy. And uh, then he asked me some questions, and a voice spoke out of me that I had never heard of before, which was to describe the color of the lightning. And with that, his so-called consternation at first, because many folks in the lodge just started laughing and what have you. And it turned out that in that tradition of the Ojibwe, I was given death medicine. And he said, do you have a teacher? And I didn't at that time. He said, because this is serious medicine and you cannot walk away from this. You've been chosen. And that's something else I have accepted over these decades. Many times in the lodge, I would hear different lodge leaders talking about everybody has a future and there's some who have a destiny. And Joe Campbell, again, reiterated that reiterated that if you have a destiny, you better go gracefully. It causes you must surrender because something other beyond has selected from how the contract has begun. And within uh, just a few days, going back to New York, not knowing what to do, uh, lo and behold, the Black Elks were in New York and they were looking for me. So within a few weeks, I was out in the Rockies on a vision quest. And here I was, this un you know, uneducated. Yeah, I knew about my background, my the inheritance. There was so much shame in the family about that. I don't want to even go to that family trail at that time, but I was being, I was beckoned away from that. And the Black Elks put me up in the mountain. And it was sort of strange to be up there naked with a blanket and the pipe, which was still new to me, in an enclosed place called prayer ties that I had to make 700 and so many, five of those ties. And being a newbie, being totally uninformed. I had learned to make prayer ties from grace. And when they unrolled those prayer ties. They just that was Wallace's wife, right? Uh, Charles Grace. Grace Eagle. I have a picture I could bring that and show you, show you Roger and all. I thought I'll do that. One second, one second. It's right in the wall here. This is a photograph of the Black Elks. You can see that? Yes, I can. And they, these elders, be at the Lakota, Grandma from Hopi, the Stogans from Musqueam, all these elders accepted me they were they were whenever i invited them they would go wallace eventually took went to bermuda with me what happened then coming down from the mountain i had a very profound experience up the mountain but then wallace would walk me through the rockies for days afterwards giving seeding me images that some took about 25 years to really take root and for me to comprehend and as you were speaking earlier john Woven into these teachings are layers upon layers of wisdom. Yeah. Some needed to be decoded in some ways for now. I have found that after the COVID, I went back to our the lodge community in Bermuda, and we just celebrated a month ago, 25 years of Sweat Lodge in Bermuda, that grandfather had seated. And I find I couldn't go back to the way I had before. And I've just come back from a big gathering in Utah of a uh, the rebirth of the Naraya, which is the Shoshone natives of Idaho. It's their version of the ghost dance. And that dance had been dormant for almost 80 years. Yeah. And the division Joe had sent me out on to fulfill was one night in a lecture, he was talking about the uh, broken hoop of the Lakota, that legend of the broken hoop. 
and that each one of us is meant to go inside and find, number one, our own disconnect in that brokenness and discover then what it, what our relationship is at this time to the bending, bringing the pieces back to, into alignment in the now time. And it was that night when I had, right, just spontaneously, I had this vision happen sitting there as Joe was speaking about, it, I was traveling around the country to, from community to community with Gene. And what would happen if we just got together as our ancestors did? We all come from the earth. We all work together collaboratively at one time, planting, harvesting, what have you, our lives, attuned to the seasons of the year, etc. And what would happen if we just started meeting together again? What was it that wanted to unfold so this was what I, what I call an inquiry of look-see. What would happen? And because of some folks I had met in Utah with Gene when I was first out there, that's, I, I gave the offering to four different groups throughout the country. And in Utah is where the offering took root. And we began the first time, I think we had 35 people that gathered down in the Canyonlands to honor the season. Well, that's not far from you, John, right? I know. That's our, uh, Pam and I, that's our holy land. That's our, that's our soul land. Uh, we lived in, in Southern Utah for, for many years and, and okay. I'm not there now, but I'm going back soon and, and <laughs> I know the Wakan, I know the mystery and the beauty and the yeah. holiness of that land very well. Did you ever hear of Bates Wilson? Bates Wilson, I don't believe so. He got laid out the, can- the, the monument down there in the canyon, the, the uh, Arches National Monument. Well, he had died just before we went down there, and his widow gave us a site with an old Phillips uh, drilling site above the Colorado River there, and we danced there the first time. We did sweat lodge down by the river, and then uh, we danced that night. We had lightning hitting the ground. We had snow and rain, but these dances were set up to, we would dance the sun up and the summer solstice and dance it down at the end of the night. In the autumn, we would dance all through the night in the springtime. And in the winter, we would gather in a lodge way up in the Uenches there above Salt Lake yep. and be gathered there for three or four days. And what began to happen was that and it was not to become Indian. This has never, never been the point. What does this think to be human? Again, this big question. And none of us know. In fact, the native way was saying just because you were born with two legs, it doesn't mean you're human. There's a level of learning that has to go on and becoming. And I could go off into a, another tangent what I learned from the Zuni people, because once the Hopi had been welcomed into Hopi, then they began to take me to different other reserves, you know, and meet, get the wisdom from those people. Uh, building on what you're saying about the humanity, one time in Elijah Wallace, and he got a lot of heat because there are some certain Native Americans didn't want him sharing these stuff. Huh. With white. I'm sure you bounced into that one a time or we two. Both on a- we were on the AIM hit list. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, he said this, and it just, just stuck with me. He basically said, all our blood is red, so get over yourselves. You know, and it's just like, that just sums it up. And I don't know if he said, get over yourselves, but he said, all our blood is red. And it was his response to this, not the right bloodline or not the, you know, the right ethnic or or whatever. And it's just, amen, there it is. There it is. Well, one time at a gathering, AIM broke into this gathering and grandfather confronted them 
you know, he just stood there in his magnificent way, and he just he just quieted them down. And as I say, after about seven or eight years, I was on their hit list along with him. I mean, he took a lot of flack. Yeah. But there are all these different elders, be it the Musqueam people, the Hopi people, and they believe in the same way, John. We're family. We've got to reconnect and, and re- reweave the basket of connection because those metaphors right. of baskets right. or blankets are very strong with the people. And you can see how a young brave would be angry and aim happened and just the, the anger and all that. But Wallace was a man of connection and love with with all beings, you know, and it's just, and as you said, I, I, I'm feeling his presence even more now than ever. And I'd like to hear a bit about your death medicine and what that meant, but it seems that the, the walls, the barrier between these worlds begin to, by God's mercy and grace, right, begin to right. thin out and you can feel, feel that presence. And it's, it's a tremendous help to me. And I'll just say, when I met Wallace, I was, I was really hurt and broken. My brother had committed suicide in my house. I'd broken up my relationship in a really bad way. I'd lost my home in Southern Utah and I was wandering around and my dog got ran over anyway, which is all this stuff. And this old four wheel drive Toyota pickup just yandering around and spirit was guiding me. Thank God. I met Wallace. It was at a whole earth expo. They used to have those. Oh yes. Yeah, there's yeah. big things in San Francisco and all, all these kind of new agey and oh, alternative yeah, yeah. medicine. So I was invited to go and help at the Reiki thing because somebody had bounced me up to Reiki master through some ceremonies and okay, I'll go help. So we were doing Reiki on people and the, this medicine woman, Rena came up and said, John, will you help? My grandfather's going to be driving. He's going to be giving a big talk at the main thing there and can you be there for him and i said well, of course i was looking at the clock and i had this kind of old joke i've been hanging out with some native americans on indian time right they're always a little bit late for everything mormons say the same thing mexicans do it's all it's kind of a thing but anyway so i'll get there on time he probably won't even be there so i get to this thing and he is like surrounded by 70 to 50 people like he's a rock star and all this stuff and i'm going oh great john you, know, you should have gotten here early and i kind of pull my way through and then he just he looks at me and he points right in the eyes and he says, you understand what, you know, <laughs> and the power. And I, was, I don't understand anything. I'm so broken and lost. And he said, yeah, you understand. So I, I, I said, hey, I know some songs that I wrote about this stuff. But you want me to sing them? Sing one? He said, sure. I didn't know me from Adam. I got up there, boom, and I sang the song. And that kind of all that whenever he would be in the Bay Area, Northern California, which is quite a bit, and this was after Grace had passed, I would be the guy and meet him at the airport, get him checked in, carry his luggage. I, I, was, so, I was so completely broken. I didn't think I could do anything, but I can do this. I can be his guy and just, you know, and so I would travel with him and he would just download on me all the time yeah, yeah, and yeah. say things that he never say in front of a group, you know, and sometimes the group, he had this kind of, I said, like a Indian Charlie Chaplin. Oh, I'm just a dumb Indian. You know, he played this thing. <laughs> he was so brilliant and he just would lay it on me. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and, and around him, I saw these things happen, you know, the, these things that you can't explain, you know, it's like, oh yeah, all the miracles in the Bible, you know, Christians say, well, that's not the age of miracles. Well, it still is. It just if you're in the right zone, the, these amazing things happen. And while they're happening, you just kind of accept it as grace, you know, and you don't try to analyze it or, or think yeah. it away. And I was like, I was so broken. And I saw him really get down on people. 
when they're oh, all, they pull out oh, the tomahawk, yeah. right? And whack people. And I was just waiting for my time in line, you know, to get me because I, I felt I was so deficient in so many areas. And he was nothing but kind to me the whole time we were together. And he just, he said, this poor kid so busted up. And he just, just gave me lots of love and the honor just to, to, to carry his bags around, you know, and, and do all that stuff. Well, Tom, what that brings up for me is that how these elders, and I, I can give you what happened with Maladoma Some and myself, the, if you know of him. Mm-hmm. He, asked, he didn't know about the lightning. He asked me a few questions. And he said, well, you're spirit. You're fire. You're not here to make peace. You're not here to do this. You're here to agitate. You're here to confront. Well, that's how grandpa did at times. You know, he could really confront you. I learned with the Mayan priests. They asked me a few questions. I never got any of these reflections in the white world. To me, what has happened over these centuries in the white way, people are on witness. People are yearning. People, Their souls are ling- uh, languishing because they've been unseen, unwitnessed. And you got seen by Wallace. I got seen by Wallace. Yeah, the Hopi elders, after 30 years, they, they finally baptized me and gave me a Hopi name, and then they told me why, you know, and how can we explain that? But I, I urge so many people, all the, all the group get in Utah last week, go, go meet other people, meet other traditions. Yeah, some of them are going to be suspicious. What are you looking for? Da, 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 da. But there are elders there that are who have the power and the the experience to see you and identify you. And then something wakes up. It's like with Joe, something woke up in me that my white way had never, the white side of me had never, ever had a glimmering of that. And that's a Northwest term used a lot. We're glimmering. And that's Joe Campbell also. And there's a vision that comes. You've got to follow the vision. I never heard that in, in my years of education, you know, parochial schools, high school, all that. That was, I was a stranger in a strange land, but they, those elders were there to nurture me. You know? Yes. They treated me very kindly. <laughs> and especially we'll go back to the death, death medicine. Yeah. Say more about that. And Wallace said to me, he says, Charlie, there are no books written about this. This you're going to have to learn from experience. And I think that the first experience was that I lived in this, upper floor of this beautiful building in New York. There are four apartments in that top floor. And we had our own village. We used to have celebrate holidays together with the family. And then the man next door died, an elder died, and his widow was left alone and was very angry and upset. And one New Year's Eve, we were all together over in the A apartment, and about 12 of us, I guess. And I just spontaneously turned to this woman and I said, when are you going to finally accept that Saul died and left you and you're fucking angry? And instead of her reacting her usual way, she just looked at me and said, you're right. Well, I left to go to a party in New Jersey the next morning and coming back as the police go into her apartment and there she was dead. You know, okay, that, that scared the shit out of me. Because what had happened in that between those hours of her not doing her usual thing, and then her death. And she had a smile on her face. Within a few weeks, I was ready to go out. I was going out to a ceremony. And a friend, AIDS didn't have that label at that time. But this chap's partner was very, very sick. And of course, it was a big thing about it being contagious and all that in New York City. 
Well, I found myself holding this chap in my arms and I get these visions periodically. And I saw this little, this Peugeot convertible. And I said, well, I described him. Well, that was my car when I as a child in France, a youngster in France. I said, well, dying is simple. All you got to do is push in the clutch and then pull out a gear and go into neutral to do nothing. Well, man, this was coming out of my mouth. I'm thinking, am I crazy? Within four hours, he was dead. And then I had a, a beautiful community in New York with a gerontologist just beginning to be talking about that. That field was opening. We had a lovely community. We had, we had survivors of Auschwitz and Belsen. We had people born in the Brownsville part of Brooklyn. And I had three of these concentration camp survivors die. And they had no, you know, the, uh, what's his name? Stan Groff's work, working with those survivors and all. And they had no sense of the beyond because that had all been destroyed in the concentration camp as young people and all. George Soros's mother, if you know about George Soros, his mother was in our group, Elizabeth. And whatever was coming through me at that time, again, this is uncharted territory. But I remember one day we came into group and this one chap who gone, his wife was gone, his kids had been gone in the, in the, in the gas chambers. Something had happened in that process with the group, telling our stories, celebrating our stories. Boshe Feldenkrais had become a teacher to me at that point, and then doing you know Feldenkrais work, some body awareness work. And suddenly, this man just jumped up because something had been released in him. He was liberated from his suffering. And there were glimmerings then, John, I had no context for them. There were little pieces floating around in the air. And yes, over these decades, I've been in, in, because I was taken into the Amazon for a number of years, seen by a a shaman up on the Inca Trail who knew I should come and live in the Amazon while he created a center with ayahuasca and the herbs and all. And we had a murder in the village while I was here one time. And then dealing with the, the, I'd fallen in love with this family of Peruvian people, and then being part of that family in that time of the murder. And I found myself in all these different situations and going in there without maybe in pure innocence, ignorance, but that is what saved the day in a way. And I don't know how up to date you are right now about all the, the skeletons being found in these Indian schools in Canada and what have you. Yes, I've heard that. Well, here, I mean, I didn't understand some of that at the time, but why is it these elders let me touch them? And grandma was taken, grandma Carolyn taken at six years of her age out of her mother's arms, you know, and taken hundreds of miles away to an Indian school. And her mother hollering at her as the soldiers drag all these screaming children away, never let them see you cry. And yet, how was it that I was the one and... I want to bring forward this point that there's a difference in someone who's seeking something and someone who is sent. And the elders in, in Wallace understood that and grandma understood that. They knew I wasn't, I didn't come seeking, but I was told to go there, told, told to do that. All these horrible stories and even up in Canada, I was up to Mohawk recently with some of the elders. I go back and forth to Musqueam after over these four decades. And then the horrible stories is buried in their psyche 
That's why the violence breaking out in Lakota, different truths, because all that buried pain, that suffering, but taken away, you know, brainwashed and killed and God knows what all by the white Catholic missionaries and other missionaries, man. And at one point, Wallace wouldn't let me go up to South Dakota. He said, Charlie, there's so much anger in you, rage in you. You would, you would frighten the people who were already upset and frightened. Because, man, I wanted to kill at one point. And all this began to come out of me. Man, I wanted just to go in with a sledgehammer and just wreak havoc. Because of the suffering, man, and you know, it's still going on. It's still going on. And for whatever reason, big my, my, my Indian dad up there in Canada, Vince Stogan, gone now many decades, but he was a big speaker in the longhouse, initiator. And his name was Sahiasin in their language, means a big he's a big mouth, the speaker. So I became Sahiasin number two. He taught me how to address many hundreds of people at a time. No, no microphones, no. You know, your voice has got to be heard. Your energy has got to touch the people. And I was up there about a month and a half ago, go back there in September to keep on this legacy. I fulfilled a prophecy there. So the one for the Hopi, you know. And it's that the path of destiny, I think. Just, how, I can't explain it. There's no way to do a bio on it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think that's one of the things that's so important that is is an antidote to the times we live in where we have these destruct, you know, and I, I read that the average poor black boy in the United States, they have a phone and they, they look at it 11 hours a day on average. Yeah. And what is the antidote? The antidote is the soul force of finding what's your mission, that you have a mission, that you're here, and there's something that is greater than you that is guiding you on the way. And that can feel pain, you can feel loss, you can just feel despair, but you can't feel cynical. You know, it is is very, very powerful and very important medicine. And yeah, I I relate to what you're saying. And one one last story about Wallace is a bunch, but my wife and I we were traveling in Florida and I, there was this big bookstore, one of the, you know, Discount books. It was must have been a, a football field. It's huge. And I was like, books, right? And I went in and I was I was checking out. And it was just me and this one woman behind the desk. And we started talking. And all of a sudden, these you were talking about the glimmerings. When Wallace would pour lodges, there would be these sparks of light that would come off his body. Oh, yeah. You know, and all of a yeah, sudden, yeah. at a bookshelf, you know, like, I don't know, 20, 30 feet away, I see these sparks of light coming. I go, that's Hang on a second. And I went over there and it was it was it was his biography. I know you that that book that he wrote with the with the professor. Lion. Lion. Right. He just just wrote it all down and you read it and you hear Wallace's voice. It's a great book. Yeah. I said, Well, this is great because mine has a broken spine and you can't find these every day. I took it and I was getting ready to buy it. And the woman said, I just saw him on, I don't know, some kind of PBS program, and it just changed my life. And I said, Yeah, me too. And we started talking about him and you know, just this this amazing connection to Wallace and, and the sparkling books. And then the next day we're, we're still we're driving back from Florida and a friend who's very connected to Wallace and, and his circle called me and said he had passed away right at the time that that incident had happened. Wow. That's so, and it's just like, well, what do you do with that? Just, you just, just hold the mystery and open your heart and feel great amazement 
and gratitude. And if the, if the universe is wired like that, then there is, there is reason to be hopeful. There is reason to keep trying to do what we've been told to do and uh, what we've been taught. So as a, you know, a tremendous loving gesture on his part to me. And there it is. Stay tuned for the second part of our conversation with Charles Lawrence. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.